to look at these events and scripture. So someone read out Mark 11, uh, 1 to 11 and the other scriptures. The interesting thing about Mark is he actually wasn't one of the disciples, but they believe he wrote often from Peter's accounts. But he tends to write very short accounts, not very detailed, and the major thing he's talking about is Jesus as king. That's if you had to say the theme of the book of Mark, it's about Jesus being king. And this entry into Jerusalem, it really helps, doesn't it, to hear something about what it's like in that area geographically. Uh, We've been to Jerusalem uh, years ago. I don't think I fully appreciated it, really, Um, but it is quite an amazing country. So it's actually where Jesus was as they made the ascent to the Mount of Olives. They were in Jericho, which is actually 300 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level, and it's only about 15 kilometres. So I figure that's a pretty steep climb. But it's one that the Jews were used to making because they used to come up to Jerusalem for all their celebrations. You see, God in his wisdom knew that they would forget, we forget, they would forget things like when they were delivered from Egypt supernaturally, other things, the festival of the booths, all those things. And the reason God likes us to remember this is not because he wants disguise, it's because he wants us to remember his goodness. You know, David often says, I'm having a bad time, my enemies surround me, all these things happen, but I will not forget the goodness of the Lord. In fact, Psalm 37, he says, I would have despaired if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So he used those psalms to actually anchor himself, to actually anchor himself to who it was he believed in, even though all around him looked dark. And that's exactly what God wants us to do. When we are struggling to actually get out the word, to actually read out the promises, to write them down, to pray them. So up they go. They come up to the Mount of Olives. It's quite an incredible sight looking out over Jerusalem. And this time they were traveling to celebrate the Passover, which was to remember how they were delivered from slavery in the land of Egypt. And it was quite miraculous and it was quite horrific in lots of ways for the Egyptians. And um, they managed to come out because of the blood painted on the lentils that it would pass over the homes of the Israelites because God decreed that the firstborn of the Egyptians would be taken. And this was after many, 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 many warnings um, that Moses gave to Pharaoh, that God gave to Moses to give to Pharaoh. So God is gracious. There were many times when the Egyptians could have just let them go. They had them as slaves. They were mistreating them. And there were so many signs given. You know, if we don't take warnings, the consequences can be dire. And um, so up they go. And there would be a lot of singing and dancing and it was a celebration and they used to come up with their families. So you can imagine on this road that Jesus is coming up with the disciples, there's a lot of sort of frivolity, um, a lot of happiness because they focused on that. So there was no work. You came, you came with your family, you came to celebrate God. 
And, you know, just like we do in church, we come to celebrate God, and it's a wonderful thing that we can do. So up until this time in the book of Mark, Jesus has been preparing the disciples, and he's been saying things to them like, the Son of Man must suffer and will be given into the hands of, of, of the leaders. And, um, but they still don't quite get it. And at one stage, he says something about, and then he will be in his glory, and James and John actually get very excited, and instead of sort of like, oh, wow, what's going to be happening to you? It's like, who can I be in this? If Jesus is going to be in glory, who can I be? And so um, at times they got their mother working on their behalf, and mothers are very good at it. Um, <laughs> but this time they just asked outright, Jesus, what can we do? What can we He said, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They're like, yeah. They had no idea, no idea of the cup of suffering he was about to drink to take upon the sin of the world onto himself. Can you have the baptism that I'm about to have? Yes, they said. They didn't mean that there was a baptism into death and torture. And then um, he said, well, yes, you may do that, because he knew a lot about what would happen in the future to them. And, um, and, but he said, but it is not, they wanted to sit one each at his side because they thought there's some glory here but what they didn't realize is the glory he was speaking about was to be hung on a cross you see that's God in his greatest glory to be hung on a cross that's what makes it so different than so many other things that's why the Jews unexpected it was unexpected that the Messiah should come and should suffer they saw him as coming as a reigning king and that's why if you look at all the pictorial things in this, it all adds up to this humble saviour, powerful but weak. And of course, who could? Who could have taken that suffering? But the greatest suffering, I believe, was in the garden where Jesus chose. It was his last temptation. He chose not to leave the garden. Yet not your will, but mine. No, wait a minute. Not my will, but yours be done. And even in his asking in the Israeli and Hebrew language, he was actually stating at the time he asked, I'm going to do your will. But he was also expressing the great anguish, incredible anguish of actually facing, taking the sin of the world. He was the sinless, perfect son of God. And he was facing that. And he got the enormity of it. But it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't fun. It was endured for the joy set before him. And what was that joy? It was that he would purchase for us freedom from sin. Is that he would be resurrected and death would lose its sting because he was the first resurrected. Now all those who believe in him are resurrected resurrected when you die you know you could be resuscitated and even a couple of accounts where Jesus raised the widow's um, the widow of Nain's son he resuscitated him really because he was going to die again even with Lazarus it was a resurrection of sorts but if Lazarus hadn't believed in Jesus he wouldn't go for the full package that he would be the next time he died he would be re resurrected for eternity 
That's the powerful news that we have resurrection. On its own, the cross would have been useless without the resurrection. That's a funny kind of thing to think about, isn't it? But it was the resurrection that made the death so powerful. And so they travelled up, and it's very interesting, the scriptures where um, he, he said to them, go and get a colt, do this and that. Did Jesus arrange this on one of his many visits to Jerusalem? Possibly. Possibly not. Possibly it was a prophetic thing that happened, that God released those people who were going to give the cult to actually, they just knew what they had to say. Just like with the innkeeper, when they finally, um, you know, Jesus' mother and father finally got to the inn. And the reason he had the cult was because in those times, if you came in on a horse, that was because you were a conqueror and you were about to conquer. And you were, or you were, you know, you were coming in to declare war. So Jesus' mother was on a donkey when the king was about to be born. Jesus came in as a king, unrecognized, when he was about to go to his death. And so he had the cult. And it's also interesting that even though he had the cult, so he wasn't coming in with the normal, like, hey, I'm a king, look at me, I'm a king, the people laid out their cloaks. The only reason they would do this normally was for a king. So the people that were gathered in Jerusalem had heard news of Jesus, but again, something happened. It was a Holy Spirit thing, and they were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. He was the first time he was called the son of David was by blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10. And Bart, uh, Bartimaeus called out son of David, and that was the first mention. And it signaled the Jews, some of them were happy about it, some of them weren't, that this man was from the lineage, the messianic lineage. And then the crowds calling out son of David, son of David. This would have made the religious leaders furious. They could not bear to think that he was the Messiah. They had something totally in mind, and they, many of them are still waiting for that person. And so they called out, son of David, son of David. And see, even, when the, even if we don't worship, the stones will cry out. But I think God really loves us to worship. He wants us to cry out. So in they go, and um, lying, putting all those cloaks on the ground, that was only done for kings. How did they know? They saw he was a king. The whole thing with the palm branches, that didn't normally happen when people were coming up into Jerusalem. In fact, 200 years before with Judas Maccabees, and he had um, defeated the king of Syria, when he came in, because he came in to cleanse the temple and rebuild it, they actually got out palm branches. They think there might have been things off ivy trees. I'm not sure it was actually palms. And they waved them and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because Maccabean was coming in the name of the Lord, wasn't he? About 200 years before. And yet they were doing it spontaneously. So there was that tremendous kind of witness by the people, and yet the events of what was going to happen continued because Jesus ensured that it happened. He had many times he could have got away, but he ensured that it happened. So he comes in, 
He just, he's in the temple courts. And then he leaves. He leaves the temple courts. Now this, I must acknowledge N.T. Wright, who's a marvellous theologian for everyone. Anyone can read N.T. Wright's book, Tom Wright. And he's a British theologian. And he does books like Mark for Everyone, Matthew for Everyone. And he showed me something that I haven't seen, and I was amazed by it. I used to think, I'm just going to, you know, with the whole fig tree. Now, I'll just read it out again so you can get the impact of it. The next day, this is Mark 11, 12 to 14, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may, may no one ever eat fruit in, of you, from you again. And his disciples heard him say it, which is interesting. His disciples heard him say it. So obviously it's making a big impact. It seemed to me a fairly kind of trivial sort of thing to be sort of shouting at trees and, you know. And I think, well, how could the fig tree, it was just figging around, how could it, how could it be doing something wrong? Well, the interesting thing is, I've done a bit of reading about this. I'm not a keen gardener, but I'm sure there'll be a few here. In Israel, the kind of fig trees they have, they often have what they call pre-figs on them. You know how with some bushes and branches, they get something that looks nothing like what the completed thing will be like. Um, you get that with roses and things like that. And there were no pre-figs, plus it had a, the word leaves there means a very lavish display, which should have meant fruit was coming. You see, when you're a fig tree, you're meant to produce figs. By their fruit, you shall know them. And then I'm thinking, why is this here? What's its significance? And then we go on, straight on, Mark 11, 15 to 18, and Jesus goes into the temple and drives out those who are buying and selling. You see, it was interesting there too because the people had to buy and sell animals for the sacrifices. But what had happened, because they, they were often coming from distances, they couldn't carry a sheep on their back. Well, they could, but it would be fly-blind and everything before they got there, so they arranged to have stuff outside the temple. But what had happened here is they had started keeping the people. They had started selling them animals that had spot and blemish, and one of the requirements of the sacrifice was that you, you actually give a perfect sacrifice. And they were making money. What made Jesus angry? Well, I believe what made him angry, and just connect this to the fig tree, what was the temple meant to be? It was meant to be a light to the nations. It was meant to show God's people to others so they may want to join them. And I know that that wasn't easy for Gentiles to come, but there are incidences of Gentiles who certainly were attracted to the temple, the centurion, the Ethiopian eunuch, and um, it was meant to be a light to the word. Suddenly, it had become this place where there was so much law, so much exclusion, that it was not a nice place, not only for the Gentiles, it was actually harsh on all the Jewish people. And anyone who had the slightest thing was told to leave the temple. So the temple had become a place of law and judgment. And what Jesus said, just as he said to the fig tree, because you're not doing what you're meant to be doing, I curse you. 
And in the temple, he stood up, he paused everything, and he said, this is a den of robbers. This was meant to be a house of prayer. And what he's actually saying is, this is finished. This system of bringing the sacrifices, year after year, month after month, day after day, it's finished, it's over. He judged the temple for the fruit that it didn't have, just like he judged the fig tree. Now, I had never seen the correlation. Is there anyone else here who has never seen the correlation between those two? Hello? No? <laughs> He's too proud to say, Mum, thanks for that great revelation. <laughs> and when I saw it, I thought, oh, my goodness, I've seen it. That's why the fig tree's in there. That was over. That system was over of continually bringing sacrifices because he was the perfect sacrifice. Once and for all, it says in Hebrews. And then they come back and it says in verse 20, the fig tree had shriveled and their disciples looked amazed. And Jesus said to them, if you understood that your words, you could move a mountain, Yes, that may be about a lot of things, but I think he was talking about the temple. You know, if you read the Bible in context and try and read it, you know, read either side of what you're thinking about and even back a few chapters, I think he was talking about that was a mountain that was set up for the provision for God's people and it had become a disadvantage. It had become a hideous thing. And... Um, and he was just talking about this is all changed now. And then they, they go up. They have the Passover. And they sit at the table. This is our Jesus. He's on his way to his death. And yet he's looking after everyone else. And they had the Passover. They used to have the bread, the wine, the lamb. They used to have other kind of spices. And there was no meat. No lamb, because the lamb was at the table. Do you think the disciples noticed that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think they were still very confused about what was going to happen. I think they still saw that Jesus' death, even if, even if they believed he was going to die, they, I'm, I'm, I think they still saw him as becoming the great ruler. And that's why they were so discouraged when at the cross. That's why they were so discouraged, because they hadn't fully understood it. And it's like us, isn't it? We understand some things about God and other things we don't understand, and we're confused. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have made a way for every one of us no special requirements, no sacri perfect sacrifice because you're the perfect sacrifice. You don't want us robbed and cheated by ways that will never bring us to Jesus Christ. You want us to have entry. And because you died on the cross and rose again, everyone that wants can have access to Jesus Christ. Everyone that cries out to him 
and have eternal life. I thank you, Father. I thank you, Lord, for your graciousness. I thank you for your love and kindness to us, that everything you did was because of us. 